The rock who gave us birth is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In my distress, I called upon she who hears. To my God, I cried for help. From her temple, she heard my voice, and my cry came before her to her ears. She made darkness her veil around her, her canopy dark waters and thick clouds. She reached down from on high, she took me. She drew me out of the multitude of water. She delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hate me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. Yet the sheltering God was my support. She brought me out into a broad place. She delivered me because she delights in me. A reading from the Gospel of John. In those days, John the baptizer appeared preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the realm of the heavens is near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Most High, Make God's paths straight. Now John had for his clothing camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the women and men of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and the whole region of the Jordan, and they were baptized in the river Jordan by him, confessing their sins. Indeed, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me is coming one more powerful than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John forbade him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it go now, for this way is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John let it go. Morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. I am really excited to start this year off right. We are, um, last week we had our Reflection Sunday, and so that was a time for us to kind of reflect on 2022, prepare for 2023. And now we are jumping right back in to our commitment for the year. 
And that commitment for the year here at Zao is to work with Will Gaffney's A Woman's Lectionary. Now, the church calendar, the, ch the Christian church calendar actually begins with Advent. That's the season preceding Christmas as we kind of anticipate celebrating, remembering the birth of Jesus. And so we're already uh, a few, you know, several weeks into our new church year, so to speak. But this church year, we are uh, being accompanied by Will Gaffney, who is an incredible um, Hebrew Bible scholar, and she has written a, um, a lectionary, which is to say a selection of readings from a womanist perspective. Womanism is a theological term, like a churchy term, for black feminism. And so from her black feminist, womanist lens, she's going to walk us through the story of Jesus, the story of God's liberating work in the world through the course of a whole year. And so having spent Advent and Christmas anticipating the arrival of Jesus and celebrating the birth of Jesus, we now get to jump right into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' ministry starts not with Jesus, but with his cousin, John. John the baptizer. So, what do we know about John? It's okay if you don't know anything about John, but if you know anything about John, I want you to shout it out. He ate bugs. That's like the one thing that is easy to remember about John. He's a bug eater. Wore very uncomfortable clothing, scratchy clothing, camel's hair. Anything else? He baptized a bunch of people in the Jordan River, which is outside of the city, of the main city where a lot of people were living, right? So he was out in the wilderness, by the river, eating bugs, wearing weird clothes, and dunking people in the water. Does that summarize basically what we know about John? He's Jesus' cousin. Everyone's got a weird cousin, right? <laughs> if you, yeah, thank you, Shana. And if you don't have a weird cousin, you are the weird cousin. I think we probably have a lot of weird cousins in this room and joining us online. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think it's great. We should identify with John. John is amazing, and John is weird. John is a fringy dude. He believes so deeply in what he's doing, but his belief in liberation has caused him to, to literally live outside of the norms. He eats outside of the norms. He dresses outside of the norms. He does, he builds community outside of the norms in the wilderness of Judea. And he is a powerful leader. He had all kinds of people coming out to be baptized. The scriptures are really clear about this, that he had a huge following. And he's intense. He's a real fire and brimstone guy. But not in the way of like the individualized preachers of like fire and brimstone in the history of this country. John was really coming for people in power. John was trying to call a people to salvation, which is very consistent with the Jewish teachings that he based his teachings on. That salvation is not individual. It's not something that you can do to save yourself. Salvation is the act of God in relationship to a people. And the people of God were making some poor choices, especially the people in power. And that's who John was calling out. And he was so successful that he was making a lot of waves. And the powers that be were really up in arms. And eventually, those powerful people had him publicly murdered.
because of the effect that he was having in galvanizing the people against the powers. So John comes off as this very confident guy, right? He's like, I'm here, I'm weird, I'm in the wilderness, you should be with me, we should all be rejecting all of the norms of empire and power and domination. And, and after me, like I'm just here, I'm just here, I'm the appetizer. Main course is on his way, his name is Jesus, he's so much better than me. I'm going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you in fire. And he's going to take all of the beloved and beautiful, and he's going to pull us into safety. And he's going to take everything evil and cruel and horrible in the world, and he will destroy it until it is ash. This is Jesus. Jesus is coming. And I am not worthy to carry his sandals. Now, this line, I am not worthy to carry his sandals, I actually knew it, I don't know, it's one of those scriptures that like ended up in my my heart, my mind, just kind of floating around there. But I think of it as a different translation. Does anybody else think of this in a different way? Shout it out. Not worthy to tie the thong of his shoes. Now, my little kid self, when I heard that, just could, all I could do was giggle. Because <laughs> all I could imagine was Jesus in a thong. <laughs> and John being like, oh no, Jesus, I could never. So that's my association with this passage. But when I was tasked with sitting with this today, moving beyond my kind of silly childhood associations and trying to unpack what exactly John was saying here, I realized that this confident, powerful, impactful man was channeling his admiration for Jesus into a self-judgment of worthlessness. He felt like the way that he could honor Jesus was actually to lower himself. Jesus can't be amazing without me being trash, relatively speaking. And how often do we do this? All the time, all the time. And not only do we do this with one another, with the people we admire, but we are taught, many of us, too many of us are taught from a very early age to think of God this way. That God is amazing, and by comparison, I am trash. Were some of us in this room taught to think about that explicitly in that way? I'm a filthy rag. I am not worthy of his love. And this is bad enough if we get messages that we are all collectively worthless, right? Like, if we're all trashed together, that's terrible, but at least we're not, like, singled out. Except that some of us are, right? Some of us do get messages from the world, from the empire, and from the church that single us out as especially unworthy. So all of that is about this concept of worth and value. Is anybody here familiar with the phrase imposter syndrome? <laughs> I was hearing a lot of like knowing mmms. <laughs> yeah, imposter syndrome. There are a lot of people suffer from imposter, imposter syndrome. It's the experience of 
of feeling like you don't belong, like you aren't worthy, like you don't deserve to be wherever it is that you are, whatever external success or validation or confirmation of your skills and abilities and value doesn't register because internally you think, I'm just not that good. And eventually they're all gonna find out. It's terrifying, imposter syndrome. And, and part of the, the issue is that so many people have imposter syndrome and, and you can be you can be very accomplished, you can be very privileged, you can be the most affirmed person in the room and still feel like an imposter. But when we talk about imposter syndrome in this way, we remove it from other factors, other messaging about our value and worth. And it becomes this kind of sickness that lives inside your brain. It's another thing that's wrong with you that you don't think that you're worth anything. Right? Somehow the imposter syndrome is your own brain telling you something inaccurate. Originally, these concepts were applied in studies related to people who were categorized as high-achieving women. So essentially, women who had found success in the workplace in male-dominated fields were assessed for imposter syndrome, and it was rampant. And these researchers thought, wow, these women, high achieving in male-dominated spaces, for some reason don't feel worthy to be here. I wonder why. Could it be the constant messaging they've received since birth that they are not worthy to be here? And this is the gap that we need to start talking about. Because imposter syndrome is not another thing that's wrong with you. Imposter syndrome is the internalization of a lifetime of messaging about your worth. So to understand imposter syndrome, we also have to understand something called minority stress. Minority stress is the experience of having any minority identity and feeling that tension in the world, experiencing microaggression, experiencing explicit forms of subjugation. And you can't have that experience day in, day out, and just be totally unaffected in your self-worth. And so, if you are black, indigenous, or a person of color, if you are a gender or sexual minority, if you are disabled, if you experience mental illness, if you are neurodivergent, if you are outside the bounds of power and privilege in any conceivable way, then you are outside the definitions of worth and worthiness in our culture. You are outside the bounds of worth and worthiness as dictated by empire and hierarchy. So you feel like an imposter because you've been told you were an imposter. John was a weirdo. John was outside the norm. John was not complying with the expectations of power and privilege and hierarchy. John was a poor kid from a rural area. John was super religious in a way that challenged the powers and religious authorities that existed. And so by a combination of his station in life and the choices he made, John identified and was identified with those on the margins. John was told by the world that he was not worthy of anyone's attention. And so when he encountered Jesus, when he encountered the most power and love 
he could imagine, he thought, of course, I'm not worth your attention. So how did Jesus respond? Did Jesus say, yeah, John, sit down, please. I'm here. Thank you for setting the stage. No. No, in fact, Jesus, in a, in a way that can feel a little bit jarring, just consistently throughout his ministry, fails or refuses to recognize the authority of systems of worth and worthiness. He just does not comply, does not compute, does not understand, does not recognize, does not engage. And over and over again, this gets Jesus into trouble because people are constantly being like, Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? That's not the people you're supposed to hang out with. Jesus, why are you yelling at those people? You are supposed to be kissing their butts. Jesus, why are you not engaging in these hierarchies that are so known that they are known in our bodies? We have instinctive reactions to put ourselves in our places. And here Jesus is breaking those boundaries and expectations at every turn. Jesus has no time or patience for these things. And so, Jesus comes to Galilee, and he's like, John's doing amazing stuff. I want to be a part of this, and I want John to be a part of what I'm doing. So he comes from Galilee to the Jordan and asks John to baptize him. The verb here is fascinating. John forbade him. Like, you can feel how important that was to John, how, how awful this felt to John, how violating it felt to the norms of power and authority and worthiness for Jesus to come ask John, I forbid you to be baptized by me. All of this is coming up. All of this worth stuff for John is coming up. And Jesus just answered him, let it go. Let it go now. For this is the proper way for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's like super easy for you to say, Jesus, let it go. Like, how do we let go of the messaging, of the cruelty, of the oppression that we have internalized in our bodies our whole lives? But Jesus continues and says, not just let it go, but this is what righteousness is. This is how we fulfill righteousness. And in our faith, in our scriptures, righteousness always is about right relationship. We are taught too often to think that righteousness is about being right. That's a trick of the English language and an obscuring based on empire and domination. Righteousness is not about being right. Righteousness is about right relationship. And so Jesus says, hey, I want to be in right relationship with you with all people, with all creation, and this is the way that we do it. Not by you denigrating yourself, not by you calling yourself worthless, but by you letting go of those lies and joining me in the fullness of your power and letting me be baptized by you. And then a miracle happened, one of many that seemed to happen a lot around Jesus. A miracle happened. The scriptures say, John, let it go. Now, I can't imagine someone telling my story and just being able to write a throwaway line like that. Jonah, let it go. 
all of their internalized self-doubt and shame, all of these messages of not being good enough or being too queer or being too trans or not being qualified, they let it go. And they joined Jesus in the work of love and liberation and salvation of all things. John was able to lay down his imposter syndrome and all these messages of empire, his distorted evaluation of his worthiness and worth. And in doing that, he was able to show up in his full power. And in his full power, he baptized Jesus, the Son of God, and participated in the infinite and eternal story of God's saving and liberating love. This is hard work, but wow, what a payoff! To be able to be the full self, the self that Jesus sees from the beginning and recognizes, to be able to join Jesus on that same page and be like, oh my gosh, not only am I amazing, I'm so amazing that I can be a part of the cosmic restoration of love and liberation. I want that. Do you want that? I want that. And Jesus wants that for us. We want that for each other to shed the lies and harms of the people who have told us we are not good enough, the systems who have treated us like we are not worthy so that we can receive the love of God in full. Now, the early church was full of a lot of persecuted people, like legit persecuted, not like the way that we hear like white Christians in this country talk about being persecuted, but like actually sought out, beaten, arrested, tortured for being religious minorities. There were a lot of fringy folks in the early church, a lot of people who experienced oppression, most of whom in the Jewish part of the church were living under occupation and who were often quite poor. And the people who did have privilege, who had aligned with the church, were aligning themselves with the fringes, the marginalized and the poor. And they experienced a lot of hardship in one of the early letters to the churches, it's written, through much endurance and tribulation, in distress, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleepless nights, in hunger. They're describing their experience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a person of those various identities in that world at that time. And they could, right? They could internalize that about their own worth and value. But instead, their faith inspires them to turn those valuations on their face. We are not who you say we are. We are worthy in the eyes of God. And so the letter continues. Amid honor and dishonor, amid slander and renown, as deceit and yet genuine, as unknown and yet known, as dying and look, we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Their evaluation comes from a wholly different place than the evaluation of empire. Their understanding of power is fundamentally different than the powers of hierarchy and domination. They find their true worth and power in love, connection, relationship, and in their inherent worth given to them by the God of the universe. 
We are called as people of faith to let go of the judgments of empire, of the world of hierarchy and oppression, to see our true selves as seen by the eyes of God. So how do we let all that go? Jesus teaches us that when we cast out evil, and we cast it out of our bodies, right? We know this. We're learning this about trauma. It is held in our bodies. But when we cast it out, we have to fill it with love. We can't leave an empty place in our body just to be filled with more lies. We have to replace that evil with the love and truth and power of God. And so when we let go of our feelings of worthlessness, we fill it with profound feelings of worthiness that we have from the love we receive from God. Our other scripture reading today, our first one actually, is from the book of Psalms. And Psalms is a collection of religious poetry. T.S. Eliot once said that, that poetry written and read well it's not intended to make you believe anything. The Psalms are not trying to teach you a kind of belief. He said, what we learn from Dante or the Bhagavad Gita or any other religious poetry is what it feels like to believe that religion, what it feels like to believe. And so we enter into the Psalms, not to be taught what to believe, but to feel connected to others, to say, what does this feel like to feel loved by God? And the Psalms cover a very wide range of emotion. There's wonder at God's creation. There's longing. There's triumph and despair. But there's a common theme that recurs, the confidence that God is with us and for us that God loves and protects us, that God is coming to rescue you to bring an end to oppression, violence, and suffering. And this confidence, it does not negate the despair or rage or frustration that we see everywhere else in this poetry. It all hangs together. What it feels like to believe is to hold all of that at once and keep searching for and grabbing and trusting in the confidence that God's love is still and always and ever there. Part of belief is actively leaning into hope. Last week we talked about cultivating hope. Not just having or not having it, but cultivating it, growing it, watering it. Tending to hope. Faith, belief, like the psalmist have, is about cultivating that trust that God is with us and for us, our rescuer, our advocate in a world of empire, in a world that tells us we are worthless. She is the one who hears. They are the rock who gave us birth. He is the sheltering God in whom we take refuge. Now why? Why is God all of those things? My favorite line of this psalm is verse 16 which says, she delivered me because she delights in me. Your worth is reflected in God's joy at your mere being. We talk sometimes about how we don't earn the love of God. And it just is. 
But I think that that sometimes strips away the shininess of it. It's just there, steady, dependable. We can't do anything about it. But God doesn't love us out of obligation. God delights in us. God delights in you. God feels joy and excitement at the mere existence of you in this room or in your home. Right where you are, God's like, whoa, you know? One of my favorite bands is uh, The Magnetic Fields. And one of my favorite songs is called Asleep and Dreaming. And the singer describes looking at a person they love while they are asleep. And he just, he just admires them. And one of the repeated refrains is, I don't know if you're beautiful because I love you too much. There is a judgment inherent in evaluating beauty. The sentiment here is that that judgment has already been rendered. The judgment is love. The judgment is adoration, acceptance, and delight. This singer can't actually engage in those hierarchies of value, these expectations of what beauty might mean, because he so loves this person he's looking at that he, he can't. His only judgment is love. I don't know if you're beautiful. I love you too much to be able to tell. And this is how God looks at you. God actually can't and won't judge you by your standards or those of this world because God judges you based on her love for you, which is infinite. So if you're wondering if you look good today, if you're wondering if you spoke well in that conversation, if you're wondering if you came off well or maybe a little too something, if you ask God, he'll tell you, I don't know. Because I love you too much to even be able to engage in those judgments about your worth. When I look at you, I see the most beautiful creature I've ever seen. I see the most wonderful person that has ever been. I love you so much. I delight in you so much that those judgments of worth from the world, they make no sense at all. I have no idea if you're good enough because you are very good. That's all I got. I delight in who you are, and that is all there is to know. So those judgments of the world, by some miracle, we are called to let them go as we take in the presence of our God who loves us, who is for us, who will fight for us, who will defend and protect us because they delight in us because they want good things for us, because they see our power and potential, because they are inviting us into the eternal project of liberating love, because they say there is a place for you. There is a place for you in this family, in this world. And I don't understand all those people who say that there is some worth and some not worth, because all I see is you, and all I feel is delight and love and satisfaction. And when you are secure when you are defended, when you are loved, you can feel and find and own your own power and join God in something incredible, which is the work of love and liberation of all things. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we pray that we 
would perceive ourselves as you perceive us, that we would perceive one another as you perceive each of us. God, in a world of domination, we pray that we could perceive beyond the structures of hierarchy, of power, oppression, and cruelty, that we could understand and embody the full value of who we are, that we could then use that power to challenge and topple systems of oppression. God, may the world be remade, not only in your image, God, but in the image of your love for us, that we may be who we are created and intended to be, that we may let go of the lies and delusions that we have been fed, that we may be full in our love, our confidence of our worth, because you made us, because you save us, because you delight in us. Amen.